You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, I'm going to start this evening with a bit of a disclaimer. Um, I've had a cough for a couple of days, and seemingly out of nowhere, I'll burst into a coughing fit. So just wanted to let you know that. But more than um, the cough, when I try and hold myself back from coughing, my voice sounds like I'm going to burst into tears. So unless you think I'm emotionally unstable, um, I'm not going... Well, I can't guarantee that. we got to leave room for what the Holy Spirit's going to do, right? I don't think I will be bursting into tears. So I will try to speak with my strongest voice um, this morning, this evening, it's not morning, this evening. Um, well, maybe I should be crying because Christmas is over, right? Time to put away the decorations, take down the tree, put away your Bing Crosby Christmas tunes, go back to work, right? Not ready for that yet? I'm not either, really. No. But we do. We do have the reality that Jesus Christ has come. The anticipation of of Advent is actually finished. So, now what? What happens after Advent? Well, last Sunday, Dave Rohr finished up the series in Hebrews that we've been doing during the season of Advent by looking at chapter 4. And the call that the writer of Hebrews gives to the followers of Jesus that they would be able to find their rest in Jesus alone instead of trying to construct some sort of rest for themselves. Well, in order to incorporate this sense of rest, a sense of Sabbath in our lives, where we can truly receive from God, I wanted to take a minute and maybe look at the ways that we try and create our own rest. What are the ways that we try and construct our lives in such a way that we can rest? Our own sense of security, our own sense of reassurance. Our focus has been on the birth of a baby boy who's the savior of the world. And the witness we have in scripture is the boy is born, he grows up, and then he dies on the cross so that we might experience freedom and transformation and the love of God. But there is some significant activity that happens in between the time that he is born and when he dies. And actually, by looking at the life of Jesus, we can actually get some great encouragement, some hope, even some instruction on how it is that we're supposed to, how that we can live our lives, that we can find our rest and receive from God. One of the first events of Jesus' life is that we get to read about in the Gospels, is his baptism. And we saw a baptism tonight of these two young girls, and Jesus was baptized just like they were in Luke chapter 3. If you'll open your pew Bibles to page 834, we get to read about Jesus' baptism. (coughs) Starting at Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. One of the first things I notice about this baptism is what happens afterwards. 
The heavens open and the Holy Spirit comes down. And Jesus is simply receiving. This is a moment when he is, he is at rest, when he is receiving from God. A moment before he goes out and does the hard, difficult work of his ministry. This is one of the first things that we hear about in Jesus' ministry. And the first thing that he faces after this baptism is temptations in the desert in chapter 4. So let's skip ahead past the genealogies, although those are always kind of fun to see how long it takes to get through all the names. Um, Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1, we'll look at the temptations of Jesus. And remember, he has, he has received from God right before this in his baptism. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, before we delve um, a little bit more into this scripture, let's stop a moment and pray. Spirit of the living God, Fall afresh on us. Be with us here tonight that we might know your presence. Lord, I pray that the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight. Speak to us now. In your holy name, amen. Well, as a way of introduction about myself, I want to tell you that I am a bit of a movie buff. I watch lots and lots of movies, and I am very grateful to the Seattle Public Library for um, all of the free DVDs I've been able to watch just by having a Seattle zip code. It's kind of a bonus. One of my favorite things about movies is memorable movie lines. I love bringing up in conversation lines that I remember from movies and seeing other people who might be also be a movie buff, and they'll get it to, you know, give a little nod like, oh, yeah, I got that. Or there's an exchange of someone saying a line from a movie and then offering something back in response. Well, a couple of years ago, there was an article um, that I noticed in Entertainment Weekly talking about popular movie quotes, memorable movie quotes. And don't worry, I only read Entertainment Weekly every week as research for my work with college students. No other reason beyond that. Anyway, there was an article written about movie quotes um, by Stephen King, the author. Um, this is the article. 
And he wrote just a short article about movie lines he thought were really important, ones that people remember, and he wanted um, to notice what those were. Well, the magazine had thousands of responses from people who said, I can't believe you left this one out. And so they had to run a whole other article about important movie quotes that, that readers thought should be included. They were outraged because some of their favorites weren't on the list. You can imagine what some of these were, I'm sure. There's Luke, I am your father from Empire Strikes Back. You can't handle the truth from a few good men. Play it again, Sam, from Casablanca. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. That was my Marlon Brando impression, if you didn't get that. And then, um, show me the money, and you had me at hello from Jerry Maguire. A few of them are a bit more obscure, but really popular. Is this heaven? No, it's Iowa from Field of Dreams. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room from Dr. Strangelove. Um, so I got that going for me, which is nice, from Caddyshack. And there's no crying in baseball from A League of Their Own. Now, I bet if any of you are movie buffs out there, you're probably in your mind trying to think of what the most popular movie quote was. Right? You're probably trying to figure it out. The wheels are turning. Well, the one that people wrote in about more than any other was this. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Um, that's from The Princess Bride, and it's probably because it's repeated 15 times in the movie that people always remember that one above any others. Well, I look at, while looking at the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert... I began thinking about movie lines for a couple of different reasons. The first is, is this exchange between Jesus and the devil. They throw lines of scripture at each other like crazy. I find this interesting, and it relates to memorable movie lines, first of all, because it blows my mind to think about how much of my brain space is occupied by movie lines that could be occupied by scripture. Slightly embarrassing. But beyond that, it makes me think about how when we look at scripture... It doesn't mean quite as much unless you know the big picture of what's going on. Taking a movie line out of context, it loses its meaning compared to the value that it has when it is at the important point in the movie. In these verses, the devil presents scripture to Jesus in order to tempt him in some way, but he takes these lines of scripture completely out of context. And in a way, the account of Jesus and the devil in the desert, Jesus is coming out of 40 days of fasting. He's hungry. He's tired. There's an antagonist coming to tempt him. Doesn't it kind of sound like the scene from a movie? I mean, you got it all. High drama, the epic battle of good versus evil. What are bound to be some awesome special effects, right? On the temple and the mountaintop. A desert scene with some rolling tumbleweeds. You can just hear the whistling western score in the background. I can't whistle. You know what I mean? All the makings of memorable movie lines. And after investing 90 to 120 minutes, we get to see our hero Jesus triumph. Now, I don't want to belittle scripture into saying that it's just like a movie. Of course, what we read in Luke actually has 
importance and pertinence to our daily lives. When Jesus encounters the devil in the desert, he not only overcomes temptation for himself, but also for our sakes, so that he is able to do what he came in the world to do. And what the devil tempts Jesus with is similar to the temptations that we face in our daily lives. Temptations that get in the way of our ability to find rest. Temptations to try and control things. Temptations to try and create our own rest in this world. Perhaps these were the moments, this time that Jesus spent in the desert, when he discovered completely the message of hope that he was going to be bringing to the world. A message no one had ever brought before. With that message, he brought hope that all we would ever need to be filled to find rest, to find love, was through him. So let's take a closer look at what the devil tempted Jesus with and how Jesus handled himself. Act 1, scene 1, the desert. In verse 3, the devil begins by tempting Jesus, who's been fasting for 40 days. The scripture actually says he is famished, to turn some stones into bread. And we have to believe he was human, so he was probably pretty hungry. The devil goes for the biggest weakness that Jesus has. To give in to his hunger when he's fasting. And he's also tempting Jesus to demonstrate his identity. He says, if you are the son of God, hey, Jesus, who are you really? Are you someone who can satisfy your own desires and demonstrate your relationship with God? The devil's role is to split relationships in this world, to cut relationships off, especially relationships with God, to convince us we can't rest in God until all our immediate problems are solved. How can you claim to be a child of God when you're struggling with these big problems instead of being able to solve them? Get rid of your problems, turn your stones into bread, And then I'll believe that you have a good relationship with God. We're tempted into believing we will be satisfied, we will find rest when all of the problems are solved. When we're completely transformed, men and women radiant and aglow from within. It's not the fact that we are transformed by God that proves we have a relationship with God. It is trust that what God has promised to us is true. A trust that usually has to be lived out in the very untransformed nature of our daily lives, full of problems, full of struggles, full of arguments. Daily lives that don't involve amazing things like turning stones into bread. But coming to Jesus again and again with another problem and another struggle... There's nowhere in scripture that says you've got to have all your problems figured out, the stamp of approval on you in order to really identify yourself as a child of God. My job here at UPC is in university ministries, and I get to meet with college women and talk with them about faith and God and all that stuff, and boys, of course. It's 
awesome. I really love it. But I find our conversations will often go to the fact that they feel like they fall short. They have too many problems to solve if God's really going to love them. And in trying to have a helpful response, I've said something like, you know, God doesn't expect you to have it all figured out, have it all together. In fact, maybe God likes it the other way so he can really get into your life and do some transforming work, help you discover who God has created you to be. Now, sometimes they disagree with me. No, I need to get all of these things worked out before I'm really going to be able to know God's love, before I can really rest. But sometimes, they'll believe me and can see a little bit of tension release from their shoulders. Maybe a smile will creep on their face as they start to realize they don't have to pretend everything's perfect, that they don't have any problems but they can go to God and rest in his unconditional love. Jesus responds to the devil by quoting Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament that offered direction to God's people. And he says, the one, one does not live by bread alone. He doesn't say the Messiah doesn't live by bread alone. He says one, which includes all of us in his response. And the the verse goes on to say, one does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Real life, real rest comes from trusting in and feeding on God's word. Jesus teaches us to find God's will in the midst of our temptation. We need to look in one place, and that is God's word. Because there we will find who we are as God's, even with our messiness and our problems and our untransformedness. I think I might have just made up that word, but you get my point. In the second temptation, the, Jesus, the devil goes for Jesus' love of the world and the people in it to tempt him. They're up on a high place, and he says, Okay, Jesus, here is the world you came to save. I'm going to make it easier for you. All these kingdoms, all these people can be yours if you will simply get down on a knee and worship me. They expect you to be their king. Let's just make it easier. And you can reach down from above, give everyone a giant group hug, and then we'll fade to black. I think this is the most powerful of the temptations, the, the one that I think is the most pole in our world, and that is the temptation of success. Prestige, maybe looking good in other people's eyes. It's something that tempts us because it's tangible. There's a measure, right, of our worth and our identity with trying to succeed. Once we've achieved what we think we need to achieve, we think then we can find rest. But what happens is we push ourselves to achieve more goals, and the next thing, and the next thing, we spend all our time doing that, and we become miserable over the smallest failures, and rest never comes, because the achieving never ends. There's always more we can do. Is it wrong to work hard to pursue excellence? No. But the pursuit of excellence can quickly turn into our only focus. And it can easily become the center of our lives and what defines our existence. Our perspective shifts from God's work 
in our lives to our own work. The response of Jesus to the devil is again from Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. He will not bow down to the devil so that all the world can be strong-armed into worshiping him. Instead, he chose the realm of forgiveness, of justice, of grace, so that we can know rest in him. He didn't come to reach down from above. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus actually emptied himself so that he can get below us and lift us up to God so that we can know God's love and it can be fully revealed to us. If we spend all of our time seeking success in the eyes of other people, when are we resting and receiving from Jesus? In the third temptation, the scene has changed from a barren landscape to Jerusalem. If the devil can't get to Jesus through his weaknesses, he's going to try another tack. He's going to try and get Jesus through his strength, by his super spiritual abilities. Now here we have the climax of the movie. Music is building to a crescendo, amazing special effects. And the devil again asks Jesus to prove himself, step off this pinnacle of this temple and have God's angels come down here and rescue you. The devil suggested it's impossible to put too much trust in God. Jesus responds a third time from Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He points out testing God is not trusting him. To require proof is not the same is not the same as having faith in God's gracious protection and provision. This temptation that Jesus is facing is one of control. Desiring to be in control of our own lives and, in a way, desiring to be in control of God. Sometimes, in order to fully rest in God, we will have an if-then relationship with God. If this happens, then I will believe. If I get the right job, if I get the right promotion, if I marry the right spouse, if I um, am able to enjoy all of the fruits of my labor and of this life, then, then I'll have an unshakable faith in God. And then I, I know I can rest in him. No worries. No, no problem. Sometimes we have a relationship with God where we just want control. Instead of keeping our, our eyes and our lives open, to the ways in which God's power and presence is available to us at every moment, no matter what our circumstances might look like. The mystery of God in this world. What the devil didn't get is that God was present even when Jesus doesn't step off the pinnacle of the temple. God is present in every single moment. And the sooner we realize that, the sooner we're able to give up control of trying to dictate and determine what our lives must look like in order to truly rest and receive from God. In all three temptations, what the devil is saying to Jesus is compromise. Don't put your demands quite so high. Bring them down a little bit. Take the immediate, easier, more tangible road. 
he was telling Jesus, if you really want to change the world, you just need to become like it. Instead of bringing God's big demands and expectations to the world, nobody wants that. But the replies that Jesus gives get right to the point. They center on the reality of God. On God's presence in the world. God's uncompromising presence. And the reality that we have in Scripture. Jesus knew in order for each of us to truly experience God's love, God's rest in our lives, he would empty himself. Get underneath the world and lift us up to God from below. He knew the path of faith, of following after God, was long, arduous, ugly, dirty, not a lot of shortcuts, to a cross where he would surrender himself to the ugliness of this world. But the cross that meant final victory over all and any temptations that the devil could throw at him or at any of us. And that victory included our ability to receive from God, to really rest in God, to acknowledge that God is present in our everyday lives. In actuality, the life of faith wouldn't make a very good movie. There's not a lot of chase scenes, superpowers. How often do you really see someone running through an airport in order to tell somebody that they love them before they fly out of their lives forever? That's what a phone is for. (laughs) Often it's long. It's difficult. It's an unexciting journey. But there are small moments of discovery of God, of powerful transformation along the way. And my hope is the mysteries that will be revealed at the end will be beyond anything that we can expect or imagine, the majesty of which couldn't even comprehend. But even before that, resting in God's presence starts today. Perhaps as you look ahead to the new year, You can resolve. That's right, I went there. New Year's resolutions. You can resolve to take time in your daily life to rest in and receive from God. To relish in the small moments of God in your everyday life. Maybe it's taking time to acknowledge God's will, your identity in Scripture. Maybe it's Cutting back on a few of your goals for achievement in order to take a real Sabbath rest in the midst of your week. Or maybe it's just tiny little prayers that you shoot up to God, that you tell God that you want to surrender control again. Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 is a great encouragement to us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Temptations entice us to indulge temporary needs that we think will lead us into rest. But Jesus came so that we might know true rest in him. 
that we might approach the throne of grace with boldness and have our ultimate needs fulfilled. Let's pray. Gracious God, we desire to know rest and to receive from you. We long to be aware of the small moments that you are present in our lives. And I pray that in the coming week and in the coming year, Lord, you would help us to know what that desire looks like to seek after you and what it looks like to find you, to find your rest, to receive from you in the everyday. We pray all these things in your gracious name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.